to another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast from the Institute of Mountain Research at Westminster College here in Salt Lake City. The goal of the Institute is to think deeply about our connections to the mountains and to share the stories of the people who live, work, and play in them. Over the last year or so, we've collaborated with Dr. Shomai Pu as part of her project to share stories of Asian American and Pacific Islander immigrants, refugees, and folks from other Asian people who have made a home here in the Salt Lake Valley. And so today, we're very happy to share Pahina Tavake Pasi's story. Pahina is originally from Tonga and comes to Salt Lake City by way of Hawaii and San Francisco. She is currently the president of the National Tongan American Society. And we spoke to Pahina late last summer, but we think now in this moment, it's important to note the recent volcano eruption and the tsunami that's affected the Tongan people in the last week or so. Uh, if you want to, uh, we encourage you to listen to a recent interview that Fahina did about those events, and we'll provide a link to that interview in the podcast description. Uh, there you'll also find a link to the GoFundMe page that the National Tongan American Society has put together to aid people affected by the tsunami. And finally, we'll also include some links to some local news coverage exploring how the events there have affected people here in the Salt Lake Valley. And so with that in mind, here's Fahina. My name is Fahina. My full name is Otolose Fahina Tabakepasi. Um, I was born in the island of Tonga, which is in the South Pacific. I moved, my family moved from Tonga and uh, came to Hawaii because my father was recruited by the Polynesian Cultural Center to come out and help build the Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii, the Tongan village. So we moved from Tonga to when I was four to Hawaii. We danced there when I was younger, so we danced at the village, you know, stuff like that. And and my mom was a choreographer there for the Tongan village. And uh, we lived in Hawaii until 1996, 1990, no, no, 1965, sorry. And then from there, we moved to California, the Bay Area. So I basically grew up in the Bay Area. I have uh, five siblings, um, actually five brothers, and uh, three sisters. And I have now I have five children and 16 grandkids. I, let's see, I moved here to Utah in 1990. And the reason why we moved here to uh, Salt Lake City is because I had, um, um, I wanted to go back to work after I had my, I had, I had all my children, well, all of four of my children in California. And I wanted to go back to work, but I couldn't because they were like, they were all one age apart. They were all like one, two, three, four, five. So I couldn't, but my in-laws here that lived in Salt Lake City, uh, said, hey, if you want to move here, you can move here. We'll watch the kids while you go to work and go to school. So that was really the main reason why I moved here to Utah, uh, because my in-laws were very supportive. And I arrived here and stayed with my in-laws, and they watched the kids, and I went to school. I uh, went to the University of Utah, graduated there with a bachelor and a master's, and then I also um, um, started working um, as a as an academic advisor after I graduated uh, at the U, so I'm academic advisor at the University of Utah for Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders in the Center for Ethnic Student Affairs. Uh, anyway, so I was there for almost 10 years, and then um, 
uh, left. And then I was uh, now currently and still, that was 2003 when I left the University of Utah and currently work as an, um, um, as an executive director for the National Tongan American Society, which is a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. So you have lived here for so long. So have you uh, observed any like changes in climate patterns, uh, like changes um, in demographics in Utah? Well, yeah, there, there, there has been, especially uh, Utah. It's really strange, but Utah is um, probably has the highest rate of uh, Pacific Islanders, you know, per capita in the in the nation, and and not Utah in general, but basically Salt Lake City and West Valley. So we have a very high rate of Pacific Islanders that reside in Salt Lake City and West Valley. So there's a growing population of Pacific Islanders that that come in. Yeah, and and I think it's I mean it's still predominantly white Utah, but I think the ethnic population is is uh, beginning to, you know, to increase uh, here in Utah. So I think that's, yeah. Um, what was the um, population, the Asian um, Pacific Islander population uh, back in the 1990s and now? Uh-huh. Do you know the number? You know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the population was in 1990. Uh, as far as for Pacific Islanders and, and folks like that, because I really wasn't into that, you know, stuff back then. But um, I know that there was a very, uh, you know, there wasn't very many Pacific Islanders uh, um, here at that time in 1990. A lot of the people started coming in. Um, well, they started coming in the 60s. You know, a few of them came in the 60s, some in the 70s and the 80s, and then more started coming in the 90s and then more so now. But one of the things that Pacific Islanders do is that they follow their family. You know, like families come and then they bring their families, and that's how that increase of number of Pacific Islanders occur So here in Utah. I'm also curious to know if there are, you know, very specific uh, places uh, that uh, have special meanings for the um, Asian Pacific Islander community here. Are there any parks, places, mm-hmm. you know, uh, streets that are very special? There, there are. Um, back in 18... Oh, man, I can't remember that. That's the 18... I think in the 18... The 1850s or 60s or anyway, in the late 1800s, we had a, a gentleman here by the name of Joseph Fielding Smith went and served a mission, a LDS mission in Hawaii. When he returned back to Utah, he came back with a bunch of Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders from Hawaii that came here, and that's when they started. That's when they first brought, you know, Pacific Islanders here in Utah, and uh, and then later on. Um, you know, they have brought their family, more people came. When they came here, they experienced racism, okay? So they didn't, so the people here didn't want them here, so they put them outside, outside of, uh, um, outside in the Tooele County area. So they put them out there, and uh, so the Hawaiians and the Pacific Islanders stayed out there, and to this day, they still have it, and so they, they celebrate that every, um, you know, every May uh, out there, uh, but what had happened is that when they sent them out there, it was a total desert. But they managed to to grow, you know, farm it, and they even dug like, um, you know, a, kind of like a 
river kind of a thingy to bring the water down. And it turned out in 19, I think it's 1918 or 1920, it was rated the most beautiful city in all of Utah. You know, so they had turned it from a desert into something um, really beautiful. But that, they were all islanders that lived there. That's what it is. So it's Yosepa. And, it, and it's still there. They still have Yosepa. It's out there. They don't, people don't live there now, but it is still, Yosepa still out there. And Yosepa in Hawaiian means Joseph. So they named it after the gentleman that they followed out here. It just almost seemed like when I got here, it just almost seemed like I was going like, everything was slow motion out here compared to the Bay Area, you know? So that was my experience of coming out here, but, um, and it almost seemed like I had to get involved in many different things just to speed things up because I wasn't quite, um, you know, happy with slow motion. <laughs> so I got involved in a bunch of different community events and started, you know, just did a bunch of stuff. So just to kind of like get things rolling and feel like that I'm moving. So that was kind of like my main experience coming here. But, you know, it was really cool for me because my in-laws were here. You know, the fact that they, I had the family support to watch the children as I went about doing things. You know, the Pacific Islander community is fairly small. And so they're kind of tight. And so, and then especially when they have uh, their own churches, I mean, not their own churches, but they have like, for an example, the, the Methodists, they have a Tongan congregation, the Baha'i, they have a Tongan, LDS, they have a, con a Tongan congregation. So um, we can immediately hook up with our Pacific Islander community through churches, you know, and then of course the families are pretty tight knit, you know, so that's, and then when they have family events or things like that, everybody's invited. So it's fairly easy to get hooked up with your, with the community once you go to a place where they're already there. You know, it's really interesting because my first, um, you know, first of all, when you look at the mountain, you just see, you just, you know, the thing that comes to, to mind is that it's how beautiful it is, you know, and how majestic mountains are and things like that. Now, the, the second thing that, that comes to mind, that came to my mind is the fact that if anything should happen, I am surrounded by mountains, you know, like if there's some kind of a air kind of a poisonous kind of a stuff, it's going to be very dangerous because the mountains are holding everything in. <laughs> and so it's going to, we're going to have to figure out, the first thing I wanted to do was buy um, air, some kind of air something, so that if something should happen, that we can throw that on and still have fresh air and not be poisoned. <laughs> So I thought that the mountains could also serve, not only are they majestic and beautiful, but they could, they're also, you know, could um, hold in, could be dangerous, you know, in many things. But, you know, but I love the mountains. I think it's, um, I'm not much of a mountain person where I go hiking and do things like that, you know, but for me, it's, uh, when I look at it, it's, you know, it just reminds me of how, how insignificant man is. <laughs> Often we think that we are all that, you know, <laughs> and then when you see these mountains and all these things, I mean, even a blade of grass, right? You know, and all that it does, you just think, wow, that is so cool. Okay. So a couple of times I've gone to the mountain, but most of the time I will just go outdoors to the backyard, just go to the backyard and, you know, and face to the direction where there's mostly trees and things like that. And just, or either that or a nearby park you know, and sit there. But a couple of times I took my grandchildren to the, to the mountains, you know, just kind of, just kind of like to, 
to have them have that feeling of appreciation of nature. You know, I took a little hike out there. So that was kind of like a good thing. Well, actually, it was a, a good event at first. And then it turned to be not so good because I lost my six-year-old granddaughter in the midst of all that in the mountains. <laughs> I know. We were loading to leave, and all of a sudden, we couldn't find her. And it was like, what the heck? And so we were just looking all over the place. We couldn't find her. And so we had to call the police and everything. Was, apparently, she was following a butterfly, was chasing a butterfly back up the mountains. And then we had people going up. We couldn't see her. So she was like, and then she ended up sitting off in some, on some rocks and just crying because she couldn't find. And fortunately, a couple of... Uh, of guys that were just coming back down found her sitting there crying and she told us she lost her family and we're like oh my goodness they bought her down but yeah so that was another mountain experience <laughs> it wasn't such a it wasn't such a a happy one but uh, but that was a that was definitely experience that we'll that we'll never forget yeah and my children every time and my grandkids every time I tell them that about hiking in the mountains they're like uh, are you sure you're not going to lose any of us. <laughs> Yeah, but then also sometimes we, um, I work sometimes with the youth, and so we'll also just take them up to the mountains, you know, to to also just go hiking and, you know, learn some, like for an example, this coming uh, in May, we're going to be taking out a bunch of youth up to the Draper Mountains, and so we're going to be doing um, some kind of a hiking activity up there where that's, we have some games as that will occur while we're hiking in the mountains that will be like self-discovery kind of games. You know, so, and it's a wonderful place to have those kind out in nature. We'll ask them like to pick up, you know, rocks or something like that, but they don't know that whatever, however many, some of them will pick up little rocks. Some of them will pick up a whole ton of rocks. Some of them will pick up a big old rock, but they do not know that that's going to end up in their backpack and that they're going to be carrying all of that the whole way up, you know, and then we, and then we kind of like, you know, tear, tear that, not tear it apart, but kind of talk about that, you know, at the end and things like that. So and then we have like games where we put boards and then they have to try to cross, you know, help each other. How do they help each other across the th without falling off on the grass stuff? So kind of just yeah. Um, you mentioned in your backyard. Uh, I'm curious. So um, what grows in your backyard? What do you plant in your backyard? Flowers, vegetables. Yeah. Um, well, right now we just have a, there's a, tr a bunch of trees and then there's tulips and then there's just flowers. There's no vegetable. Um, we just recently, like I said, my mother-in-law just died a year ago. And so we moved in with my father-in-law, but um, I lived 20 years in holiday in our backyard there. We had vegetables, we had flowers, we had all kinds of stuff back, you know, and it was a, a, a wonderful place and we had ivies growing everywhere. So it was really a nice place to, uh, my bedroom was you know, had a door that you could just kind of walk out and there was that whole backyard stuff. So it was a very nice place. And I would, you know, go back there and sit and, you know, meditate or read or something in the backyard. So that was kind of a nice setting for all of that with all the things that you were saying, you know, with vegetables and things like that. But where we're at right now, it doesn't, we just have trees and, and grass and stuff like that. But so there's not, you know, we're starting to grow little tulips and stuff in one corner, but we're not quite there yet in developing and building more of a garden area because <laughs> we have a big old trampoline. It's more set up for the grandkids. How do you hope to share your tongue and background with your grandkids? The things that I do, the way that we live and how we, the things that are important, the things that are of value to us ties into our culture. You know, like for an example, family is very important. You know, family is very important and it's not just mother, father, 
children. It's aunties, uncles, grandparents, cousins, and things like that. So if anything should happen, like a funeral, wedding, or what have you, those are very important things for us to show up. And not only just show up, but helping, you know, we go there to help and do whatever. So just by living the culture, I think it's an example to my children that shows what's important. And so they in turn also kind of adopt and, you know, and they do the same thing. They don't, uh, I think they've all been back like maybe once to Tonga. You know, they've all visited Tonga once, but it's, uh, you know, it's so, but I know they all would love to go back and forth, you know, between Tonga and here, you know, and with this uh, COVID, you know, so I try to go back at least a couple, you know, every other year or something, something like that, because I, uh, I, I enjoy going back and family still there, family in the Bay Area, family in Hawaii. We still have family everywhere. When we go places, we don't need a hotel. We just go and I'm here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I like food. Um, do you serve like a traditional food and banquets, like a wedding banquets, uh, wedding ceremonies, and uh, you know, there's like the funerals? What kind of food do you have? I'm curious to know because uh, I'm Chinese and um, I grew up in China. I'm very I could use the two Chinese food, but when I moved it to the U.S., so um, it's harder for me to find um, traditional or authentic Chinese food. So uh, I'm always very curious about, uh, you know, um, people who have immigrated here or who have moved here who grew up with other food traditions. So could you tell us a little bit more about the food tradition uh, traditions in your community? And uh, perhaps also um, sort of a mix <laughs> or the influence of American food. Um, food is very important in the, you know, I guess in, in most communities. Uh, and in our community, uh, when you go back into the Tongan tradition, food is very much um, a way where we express love and care for for each other. Um, and so it continues to be so here. Uh, like, for an example, when they have weddings or funerals or things like that, people will uh, either donate money to help with the food or will provide the food or will help, you know, bring food or things like that. And typically, uh, fortunately, um, right now there's plenty of Pacific Islander stores and Asian stores that have Pacific Islander food like taro leaf. You know, um, they have uh, you know, the sweet potatoes, the yams, the all you know, kumala, talo, the taro, stuff like that. So we can purchase the food, and then, of course, they make it. Um, you know, they make the, the food. So it's not that difficult to find out here. And not only that, there's also there are also restaurants, Tongan restaurants here that, that make Tongan food. So you can just, like sometimes when we have meetings and we want Tongan food, we just order it, you know, and then you can order, you know, whether it's chicken or what have you. Lupulu, which is a taro leaf with corned beef and, you know, with coconut milk and all that kind of stuff. So it's not very difficult to find and to make. So a lot of people, especially the older generation, they make their Tongan food. Like you were saying with the new generation, you know, of course, some of them, it's a lot of them is fast food, which is unfortunate, you know, because a lot of them, it's uh, like my children. For them, food is going to McDonald's and grabbing food there and whatever, Kentucky Fried Chicken or what have you. So I, I'm always trying to encourage them to, you know, just make a pot of chicken soup or beef soup and leave it at that. That's much more healthier than 
than that, you know, but sometimes they just don't have the time. And so fast food is kind of like taking over this upcoming generation, unfortunately. I mean, at this point, I almost feel like there's not a loss of traditional food because every home, it almost seems to me that most of the homes, you know, they know how to make traditional food. It's not like, you know, it's just a choice, you know, whether they want to make it or not. And then when they have weddings and funerals and things like that, the traditional foods are served, you know, things are there and a combination of stuff. So it almost seems like if it was lost, it would be a great thing. And maybe it's something to think about to reintroduce to the to the youth. Um, you know, Tonga is very flat. Tonga does not have a whole lot of mountains. You know, they might have a little couple hills here and there, especially blah, blah, blah. yeah. But it's a very flat. But you know, what's really interesting is that Tonga has a saying, a mountain saying that says Tonga Moonga Kiheloto, which basically means Tonga mountains. Mountains are in the heart. So basically, it's a, it's a saying that encourages people or tonguing people to determine that even though we don't have mountains, we have mountains in our heart and we can conquer. We can do whatever it is that we want to you know, put our minds to type of a stuff. But it's interesting that they use a mountain you know, to, for that um, kind of like quote that's pretty much well known in Tonga. Yeah, so, yeah, so I think it's really interesting that, that the mountain was used for that. Beautiful. Very poetic. Oh, uh, your name? What does your name mean, curiously? Fahina. I go by Fahina. Otolose doesn't really mean anything. Otolose is just a name. Otolose doesn't. But Fahina is a fa, is a fa tree, is a pandanus tree. Um, and so usually when the pandanus tree is by the ocean, uh, because of the, um, you know, the salt that flies out when the waves come in. The pandanus trees, are typically, they're orange and gr orange or red or something like that, right? But when they're by the ocean, some of them turn, they turn white because of the salt. And so fahina, hina means white. So pandanus, a white pandanus tree. Okay, so that's what fahina means. And tabake is a, um, is a bird. It's the name of a type of bird. I don't know what it is in English. Yeah, and pasi... That's my married name. It just means a couple of things. It can mean a bus or it can mean clap. <laughs> so, but yeah, so those are kind of like the, I think I feel more connected to the bird than I am to the tree. Um, yeah. I, and I don't know why, you know, but I, I think it's a, I think it's just a beautiful thing to look at the tree, you know, and then the bird, uh, it's also a, a, a pretty thing, but I, I'm not, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like that kind of uh, connection to to those things because I'm named after it, and and I think in um, I think I I feel I feel more connected to who I'm named after. For an example, uh, Fahina, I was named after a a cousin of mine who passed away. She died when she was very young, and then when I was born, I was named after her. So I think for us, a lot of us is that we are more connected because we're usually named after people. Like Otolose is my auntie. And the Fahina is my cousin, and then you know, so we're usually named after people. So I think for us, we're more connected to the people that we are named rather than the meaning of the names. Okay, in my culture, um, there is this tradition of naming people after trees. Like my sister, she's named uh, after a 
tree, uh, which is also, I think, her godmother. You know, it's kind of a, a tree veneration. That's why I asked her to thank you for sharing. It's very interesting. Personally, my hope is that they will, you know, that it will continue to flourish and grow and that our Pacific Islanders and the Tongan community will find, you know, all of them will feel that Utah is home for them, you know, and even if there are, you know, racist or discrimination kind of stuff that's going on out there, but that they will understand, but they'd still feel and know that this can be home, this is home. You know, and the same thing for my children, because like I said, well, um, of course, all my children, except my youngest son, who was born here in Utah, they identify as Tongan American or American Tongan, you know, so and being here in Utah, I want them to feel like that this is also not only Utah, but also California, because I feel like that's where our roots really began is California and Hawaii. But most especially in California, I feel like we're developing these roots here in Utah, as we moved here in 1990, that that that's kind of like something that they can they should continue to to grow, you know, to grow those roots and to make Utah a home that is uh, productive for them in many, you know, you know, not only in you know school and education, but perhaps maybe in businesses and um, you know everything that 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 a person needs to have a productive life that they would be able to plant and grow that here in Utah. I mean, Utah for them now is, is home, you know? Um, Utah is home for them, and um, they've, uh, some of them have already started, you know, a couple of business and things like that, and then, of course, family. So there's family that's already here, so they'll, they'll stick around. <laughs> when I look at my children and also my grandchildren, I see that they are very proud of who they are. First of all, you know, genetically they're Tongan. And then of course they were born here in America. So they're accepting of both. You know, they're both they're accepting of their Tongan um culture because like I said that we we live it. So we do it every day, you know, we have things when birthday parties are happening or when funerals are happening, we do those traditional things. And we show the importance and the value of those things and how we tie to the family and how family is important. So I think the fact that it really kind of brings them closer to the family and other family, I think that kind of weighs heavy on them and they appreciate that. And so that's for our children and then for the grandchildren. Now, my children kind of pass that on to their children, you know, mm -hmm. so, so to the grandchildren. So for me, I don't really have not experienced a um, identity crisis, you know, where there's a struggle between being American and being Tongan. To me, it almost seems like that they're very accepting of being who they are as a Tongan and then being who they are, being born and raised in this bicultural American culture, you know. So they're, they, they're very functional in both. You know, even though maybe in the Tongan culture, they may not be as traditional as some of us older folks, but definitely there are some cultural things that they are very much aware of and still practice. You know, and then, of course, in the American culture, there are some, you know, culture there that's not accepting of our culture. And they, you know, put that aside and, you know, and continue to do whatever is accepting or that works for them. I speak Tongan and English. Yeah, I speak Tongan mostly with my husband and my father-in-law. But then when my 
children and grandchildren are there and stuff. So I'll speak English to them. So, yeah. And then sometimes I'll speak English to my husband too. Do your children speak Tongan as well? No, not my, my children. They understand Tongan, but they can't, they can speak very little. They can speak some, but not fluent. Yeah. And they always, they're always blaming me. Yeah, that's your fault. You should have taught us. I'm like, no, no, no. Y'all should. <laughs> so yeah, they're kind of disappointed that I did not teach them the language. <laughs> you know, I think it was just an oversight, you know, and I told my husband, we really should have just spoken Tongan at home. Because the, because they when they go to school they speak everything is English outside of the house, but it was it just seemed easy. It was just being lazy on our side on our part. That's basically what it was. It was just being lazy because I remember one time we had lefkatonga, um, which means learn how to speak Tongan. You know, So we would have it like every a day where we would do where we would speak Tongan all the time that whole day. You know, a couple of days of the week, and then that was to help them learn Tongan. But then I got so tired of it because every time I spoke it in Tongan, I had to translate it. So it was like I had to repeat myself the whole day over and over. <laughs> so I got tired of it and we just kind of fell by the wayside. But yeah, there was some effort, but we should have put more effort into it. Are there any like ideas, concepts that are very difficult to be translated into English? Not really. I mean, there are there are traditions and things that, you know, some cultural practices that we have that are when we share it with, you know, with people that outside of the culture, they're, oh, wow, you know, that's very different. But mm -hmm. um, but it's not really very hard to to translate and to mm -hmm. express, mm -hmm. but it would be different. You know, like, for an example, one of the in our culture, their sisters are held high, in high regards, mm -hmm. you know, amongst their brothers. Mm -hmm. And there is a high respect between brothers and sisters. And growing up, we are never, there's never to be any kind of expression of shady expression or swearing or anything like that expressed when, they're, when your brother is there or if your sister is amongst the brothers. So there's that kind of respect amongst sisters and brothers. And so when we're out in... In public, it's we are very, you know, aware to make sure that my brothers are way over there. We kind of go far away because, you know, out here in America, people just cuss, you know, left and right. Nobody really gives a darn, <laughs> you know. But for us, when our brothers and our and our sis or for the brothers, when the sisters are there, it's very disrespectful when when there's, um, you know, bad words are being said or bad things or anything that is of a shady nature when your siblings are around. Yeah, I, I try to tell them. Uh, I try to tell them like scary ones, <laughs> and the one that I that I tell that they really like, and they're just always telling it's um, it's a uh, it's a story about a, a young lady that um, that passed away, and um, and she usually when you go to the ocean, when you go to the beach, if you're there, sometimes you will see her. She will show up and she will come and she'll take her head off. And she cries, and as she's um, as she's combing her hair, she's crying. She's like, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, you know." So then I'll do the crying and stuff like that, you know. And, and they're like, "Oh no, yeah, she's crying." She says, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, on my head, stuff like that." So kind of like scares them. So they like that that story about this uh, young lady that had um, lost her her, you know, 
her, her head. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do you know the origin of that story? Uh, yeah. The origin. Okay. If I remember correctly, her name is Sinilao. And um, she was a daughter. She was a daughter of one of the Tongan kings. And something had, had occurred. And she went missing. And they couldn't find her. And they couldn't find her. And then that's when um, the only time that they would see her is when, you know, of course she ended up dead. And the only time they would see her is when she showed up by the ocean. And when she was there by the, the ocean, she would take her head off. So apparently showing that, you know, something had happened to her head and, and cry. And she would just kind of, you know, comb her hair while she's crying, you know, being headless. Her, her head. <laughs> you know, I really don't know what the message is in that story. I just know that uh, it's, it's the uh, a parents losing their child you know, and then for the parents to never really connect with that child, you know, uh, but only in this format where she's headless, which is not really kind of. I know. <laughs> but, uh, so I don't really know what the, the there's a whole kind of meaning. I'm, I'm sure there is. I probably just don't get it. I just thought the stories was kind of the story was kind of cool. And so I tell it so just to scare my grandkids. But but they love the, the, the vision of a headless woman being combing and crying by the ocean. Crazy kids. <laughs> or maybe it's a crazy grandma. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a, then there's another story I tell where same thing about the king. They went to, uh, they went to this Island and the Island, they were, they were, they were hungry, but then they also had to make offerings. You know, they had to make an offering to the king. These people that came they had to make offering to the king, but they couldn't find any food. And so then they had to, they, forgot, they, they had to go to the king, but they can't go foodless because that's just not. So they decided to cook their daughter. So they cooked their daughter and then they offered their daughter as, as the offering to the king when they went, you know. So that's also another story I tell them. And they're like, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, really? <laughs> I'm like, but that's a, that's a traditional story about the Tong, the Tong in, um, you know, in Donga. That's a very... Um, Whole story of how uh, it's supposed to really talk about how they value kings because we still have a king in Donga, you know. Interesting. Why are all the stories about daughters? Are there stories about other? I know, like sons, right? Why don't they cook them? <laughs> Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Mountain Stories podcast. Uh, we really need to thank uh, Fahina for sharing her story with us. We need to thank the Whiting Foundation as this series is supported by a um, public engagement seed grant from them. Of course, we thank Westminster College. Uh, we thank Pixie and the Party Grass Boys like we always do for our theme music. I co-lead the Institute for Mountain Research with my colleague Jeff Nichols, and so we thank him. And uh, again, thank you all for listening. We're located here on the traditional ancestral lands of the Ute, Goshute, and Shoshone peoples. Thanks a lot. See you next time. Bye. Before I